Welcome to Remember Who Made Them, a six-part podcast series, digital campaign and fundraiser that helps to energise a new solidarity economy in fashion. An economy that centres the health and well-being of workers over corporate profits, an economy that cares about the social and environmental impact of the clothes we buy, and an economy that builds power in the communities where our clothes are made by celebrating the labour and dignity of garment workers, by demanding fashion brands and their owners be held accountable to pay up and do better, by elevating, not competing with existing movements and campaigns, and by refusing to return to the way things were before. We know we can transform the future of fashion. Clothes are powerful. We use them to express ourselves and to explore our creativity. But no matter what clothes we wear, we should always remember the people who made them. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing various activists and organisers who inspire us. We want to ground these issues in conversations with people who have committed their lives to this work. And we hope this will energise you on how to show up, take action and remember who made them. So firstly, let's start by telling you a little bit about who we are and talk you through what we're wearing today. I'm Venetia Lamana, podcaster, broadcaster and ex-fast fashion addict turned slow fashion campaigner. Today I am wearing a pair of tracksuit bottoms. This pair of tracksuit bottoms I managed to get back from my husband who stole them from me for a year. They're my favourite, oldest, most sloppy tracksuit bottoms but I love them they're just super super comfy I'm also wearing a slogan t-shirt that I've had for maybe three years more on this later the one I'm wearing says I'm forever against animal testing it's one by the body shop um I thought that was quite a kind of pertinent thing for me to be wearing today bearing in mind the conversation that we're going to be having now a few months ago when coronavirus put the planet on pause I was upset but not altogether surprised at what was happening in the fashion industry which consistently puts profit over people and planet. I started chatting to my good friend Swati Deepak about what we could do. I will link the podcast we did together back in spring 2019 on why fashion is a feminist issue in the show notes as it's worth a listen. And I'm now going to hand over to Swati to let her introduce herself. Hi everyone, I'm Swati Deepak. I'm a social justice consultant um, and I've been working across um, feminist ecosystems, philanthropy, international development, the arts and fashion and just really care about moving towards a world of justice and liberation for everybody. So I'm wearing one of my favorite dresses by 1111 which is really special to me. It's made of Khadi cotton which is an indigenous seed and weaving technique from India and South Asia And what's really special about it for me is that during um, the British colonization of India, the Khadi industry was completely decimated. Looms and industries were burnt to the ground to make way for the cotton mills of Lancashire and Britain. And as part of the freedom movement for India, people decided to reclaim the industries that the colonizers had completely burnt to the ground and reclaim that uh, as part of their freedom and, and their movement towards liberation. And for me, Khadi represents so much about uh, indigenous ownership and a chance to kind of retaliate and and fight back. 
if you look at the flag of India, there's a spinning wheel in the middle of the flag that actually comes from the Khadi spinning wheel. And so the cloth is very much a part of the movement for liberation for all Indians. When all of the coronavirus struck, I think those of us that have been working in social justice just realized how much the virus was just visibilizing so many of the injustices and the problems that we see around the world and was just really struck by what was happening with regards to garment workers and was speaking to Venetia about this and also reached out to my good friends Davy and Ruby. Davy, Ruby and I have worked together in the field of social justice and feminist philanthropy together for a few years and we were just really catalyzed by this moment of the coronavirus to really help highlight what was happening around the world and draw attention to those movements that we're so inspired and close to. So I'll pass over to Davy. Hi, I'm Davy Leeper O'Malley, and I also work in social justice organizing, mainly on redistributing diverse resources to the activists that need them. Today, I'm wearing a mixed print outfit. I have like a crop top that has a batik spiral. I'm wearing a black and white striped pencil skirt, and they're both really old pieces. I would say this is actually one of my oldest outfits of the day. The shirt I took, stole from my mom's closet, definitely more than 10 years ago, and I know it had been in her closet for longer than that because I had coveted it for a while. And then the skirt is actually a fast fashion piece from Target that I bought five years ago but has stood the test of time and two pregnancies. The situation facing garment workers really hits close to home for me because I'm Cambodian American and I grew up in Cambodia. Like many of us, I started consuming fast fashion when I was young and I wanted to be trendy, I wanted to be cute and to express myself and also fit in. But I think what was really different for me is I was buying fast fashion products that were rejects from the factory floor because in Cambodia, that's where a lot of garment factories started popping up. They started employing thousands of women there. You know, some of the biggest brands like H&M, Banana Republic, Old Navy were making their clothes there. And any piece of clothing that didn't meet the standard and wasn't going to be shipped off to high street stores, you could buy them in the marketplaces in Cambodia. You know, I'm very fortunate to have parents who are both humanitarians and activists themselves. I'm just compelled to do something for workers that are affected by coronavirus um, because it's so much of like who I am, but it's also like who I'm not. You know, it's just luck of class privilege of where I was born and what family I was born into. But I still see so much of my life with the garment factory workers. So when coronavirus hit and um, I was chatting to Swati, I also thought I should reach out to Ruby, who has become like a co-partner in my life. I also met her in Cambodia through my mother's activism, and we've worked together on building and leading 
a young feminist fund called Frida. I'm going to let her introduce herself now. Thanks, Devi. My name's Ruby. I'm also a social justice organizer and consultant and working with movement, social movements, organizations and funders um, in particular to shift power and move resources to also young women and girls. It's really an area that I'm, a group that I'm really focusing on. It's beautiful listening to Swati because um, I'm actually also wearing Cardi Cotton. Um, I'm wearing a jacket that actually I had a friend of mine uh, in Mexico. I've been living in Oaxaca for the last sort of seven years in the south of Mexico. And a young Mexican designer, um, Lubia Corres is her name. She actually designed this jacket for me. And it's using um, cotton from a collective uh, which is run by Indigenous women. And it's called Cardi Oaxaca. And it's, yeah, it's hand-spun cotton um, using and created using a foot loom, the material, and it's dyed and it's indigo. And that's actually the name of my son. So it's like a meaning for me. So I'm wearing that and also just wearing a, a vintage dress I bought from a, a shop in Brooklyn. Um, and I'm also wearing earrings that are um, little Zapatista faces, which are a revolutionary group, indigenous group from Mexico. I actually bought them at, was, was the first gathering of um, Zapatista women um, and that was open to other people and on International Women's Day two years ago in, in an autonomous Zapatista community. And I just, I wore them because I was just thinking about for me, trying to find things that I wear that are symbolizing autonomy and different ways that people share their, you know, the, the things they make and it's part of their politics. And to be able to wear that is a really beautiful and powerful thing. So I was really happy when Swati and Davy and Venetia reached out for me to be part of this collaboration. Um, I've been feeling for a long time that, that I really need to do more um, as a consumer in this area and just really think about how to hold brands accountable. I think there's a number of things in my life that have kind of I've had frustration and anger around how to align like my values and my politics and what I do and how I purchase. I think living in Cambodia for me was also a real wake up call um, just to see like trucks full of young women garment factory workers going off to to work and but also seeing the way um, they were organizing there. I love this campaign for what it represents of being able to weave together some of the different initiatives and campaigns and amplify that work um, and really grounded in that. So and I think I've particularly been impacted by the violence that garment factory workers experience experience. I've also, because I've been living in Latin America, I've also seen like the border cities like in Mexico, but also throughout Central America, the way femicides, particularly garment factory workers, are a lot of the women that are killed in fem- like different violence there. The expendable nature of life, is that's really um, something that struck me. I want to really value the work and the lives of garment factory workers. Thank you so much team for introducing yourselves and for grounding us in this first episode. Let's get on with our first discussion. So often we see huge unethical fashion brands greenwashing, girlwashing and racewashing. From luxury brands like Marc Jacobs appropriating black culture on the Fashion Week runways, to in-house racism from supposedly sustainable brands like Reformation, to prints stolen from indigenous communities to make billionaire CEOs richer, and slogan t-shirts from places like In The Style saying things like... I'll never financially recover from this. Most likely made by women who don't have basic rights. One of the things that I think we were all struck by and continue to be struck by is that the fashion industry is a $3 trillion 
industry. So on the back of that $3 trillion industry that fashion is, we know that 75% of the market who consume that are based in Europe, the United States, China, and Japan. So we rarely think about who those workers are, but we know from statistics that 80% of those garment workers are black and women of color who don't even earn a fair living wage. Some of them are earning as little as just $21 a month. What's conscious or feminist about that? When coronavirus hit, when stores shut, what happened was that these retailers just canceled their orders. We know that in Bangladesh, for instance, 2.4 billion worth of orders were just canceled overnight. And out of that, almost half of what they had already canceled was actually completed or in mid-production, which means that those workers had already finished those pieces or were right in the middle of creating them. Primark, for instance, suspended or canceled 1.4 million of those orders alone. The stats are just stark and, and we can draw upon those and we will share those with you in the campaign. But I think all to say that these companies who are running these big stores the moment that they didn't have a chance to make money from us as consumers, the moment that they shut up shop was the moment that they also cancelled on all of these women, all of these people who draw their lives and their livelihoods from this work. And that was something that just felt not just unfair or unjust to us, but also just felt like it was just systemic to the issue of fashion. How can we build industries that allow for people like Sir Philip Green to just keep on accumulating wealth and earn billions and billions while the women in those factories who are toiling and making those clothes for, for Topshop are earning just $21 a month? You know, something that we've known for a while um, or have really woken up to with the pandemic and crisis is that it's just exposed how much the system is not designed for the majority of the people or the planet that, you know, a corporation can close up shop and not feel any responsibility for the workers that are the bloodlines of their industry. And, you know, I try to think of the human side of this and, you know, there are people who make these decisions and, what does it take for that person to be able to do that, to be able to not feel that responsibility and want to come up with a different model? That's what I, I guess the rage for me comes from. And it sort of speaks to what systemic change is. It is about the laws that support a living wage. It is about the laws that protect pregnant people. And it's also about providing the opportunities for people to have jobs, but it's also so much about like our individual consciousness, our own individual behaviors, and the culture and the norms that we've bought into. I think that, you know, the pandemic has exposed the ways that we've constructed our world are not working. We know that, you know, 40 million people around the world are modern day in modern day slavery at the moment. And one of those things is debt bondage, you know, and it's when families don't have enough money to to pay for the basics there are predatory loan sharks that will give them money will will offer them a loan to help relieve them so that they could just buy essentials so that they could buy food to put a roof over their head to maybe access medical equipment and those people enter a bondage to those people the interest 
that they put on just keeps on accumulating and what you have is sort of slavery that comes from that debt bondage as well and it just when you were speaking made me really think about that generational impact but also those those just long systems of access to wealth and capital that this industry is just not thinking about when it's putting new garments onto the stores. And Venetia, I know that you have done so much around really speaking up about the, you know, about t-shirts and, and these slogan t-shirts that, you know, you, you're also wearing today as well. And just, yeah, I'm not sure if it's on brand or off brand for me <laughs> at this point. But yeah, something I'd actually really like to draw people's attention to is a digital campaign um, that's happening on Instagram at the moment called Pull Up for Change, which is interrogating brands on their anti-racism policies. And I would really, really recommend checking it out. I think it's a brilliant way to hold a brand accountable, but also ask them to do better. And absolutely calling out brands is something that I feel really passionately about. I feel like we have this incredible access to brands now through social media. So let's hold them accountable for their unethical practices. The slogan and charity t-shirts influx at the start of Corona was kind of um, a little bit overwhelming. As soon as we hit lockdown, brands like Boohoo were breaking social distancing rules, forcing their workers to make, shoot and pack slogan t-shirts that frankly we didn't need and putting the lives of their workforce in danger. But the conversation around slogan t-shirts, especially when they're for charity, is definitely a nuanced one, which is why I was really looking forward to talking about it on this podcast. So slogan t-shirts team, are we boycotting them altogether? And what about charity t-shirts? How's everyone feeling about charity t-shirts? Perhaps in light of you know, when we were in lockdown and breaking social distancing rules, but also just moving forward, where does everyone kind of stand on them? When we all started talking about this issue, I think one of the things that just struck us was the amount of t-shirts that were coming up um, in support of charities. The fact for me really is that you can't be building liberation of the exploitation of other people in the other part of the world. I remember on WhatsApp and like some of our earlier conversations last month, was about these, you know, NHS t-shirts and choose NHS t-shirts. And for me, you know, I totally understood why people were doing it, you know, in support of these amazing healthcare workers who were getting us through this crisis. But on the other side, for me, it was just like, one, who's making those t-shirts and what conditions are they under during what lockdown do they even have access to healthcare services can they afford healthcare services in their countries do they have any form of protective equipment are they practicing social distancing in these in these factories you know we also know that the fashion industry is after oil and gas is the second biggest polluter on the planet as well so it's you know you question well where did those materials come from how much are we extracting from the land and our planet and earth about that and then the third for me was actually instead of a big brand actually you know like an asos like a boohoo like a pretty little thing like a Topshop, instead of them just saying, you know, we want to be in solidarity, we want to do something um, around coronavirus, you know, we want to celebrate our NHS, we want to celebrate the people who are upholding us through this pandemic and crisis. Instead of them just saying, you know what, we will actually just pay these workers who are left 
completely without livelihoods overnight or we're just going to donate to the charity directly and we'll tell you how much or you know a percentage of our profits this month in honor of the NHS workers will be about getting funding to them there are so many other actions that brands could be doing but the fact that they just you know they shut up shop shut up factories left people without jobs and then the moment that they saw an opportunity to make some money and to to draw people to their websites is when they then put out these charity t-shirts like in the middle of a pandemic I was so incensed by it and I think the NHS issue for me is is a more complex one because the NHS is not a charity in the UK. It is a social service that our government provides and we have billions of dollars to you know, bail out banks and big corporations and yet our NHS workers are dependent on food banks and on NHS charities. Going back to what Davy was saying, the system has not been built for people it has been built for wealth accumulation and that's why these issues for me are so complex is because they don't they don't draw our attention to actually what the real underlying issues are something for me like that I'm sort of have been grappling with and we've spoken about this before is just I guess that why people feel they need to buy a t-shirt at all, <laughs> like in terms of being an ally or showing up for, you know, different communities at a time when they need them most, that why for them it has to be something transactional and they have to get something back. It raises a lot of questions around the need to sort of understand and interrogate that. And yeah, just to, there's perhaps some, you know, more collective reflection and political education around like what that means. So I think that's something I've been struggling with and like a bit disappointed with really honestly of where we are. Um, but I'm also recognizing like a lot of people are just coming to this work in different ways. Um, and it's not an easy answer. Like I think some of the organizations that I've seen lifting this up, you know, the work that they do is, is good. Um, and the work that the funding is going to is of value and should be resourced. So I think it's just the idea of having a T-shirt for me. It just seems very, um, yeah, there's not an alignment there and there's a lot of inconsistency because I agree with what you said, Swati. I've been struggling with that a little bit of where we are in the reality. I, I kind of struggled a bit with it as well. I had some really complicated and kind of tough conversations. I spoke to Josie, who runs Help Refugees, about their charity T-shirt, which is a really, really incredible charity and they do such great work. But I think that's why it's so important to have these conversations and to speak up when we don't feel like things align because we had a really, really good conversation. I feel like we both learned a lot and we're both moving forward with more understanding. When you really start thinking about slogan t-shirts, especially when they're coming from unethical brands, so many of the slogans just feel tone deaf, especially when they're talking about equality. One thing I'd really like to say is if you fall in love with a slogan t-shirt or a charity t-shirt and you really want to buy it, please go forth. Just wear it for a long time and really, really look after it. I never want anyone to feel like I'm standing in the way of buying something that they really love I just think we really need to kind of focus on conscious consuming and can we instead upcycle or customize a pre-existing t-shirt and if we're in a position to do so to donate direct instead there are of course really really good examples of uh, charity t-shirts I think are done very ethically and sustainably one is by a girl called Mimi Butlin who I follow on Instagram she is at can't go out I'm sick she collaborated with disability charity Leonard Chester 
Cheshire and together they created a Disabled Looks Like Me t-shirt in order to raise awareness of invisible disabilities and break down stereotypes of what disabled looks like. I spoke to her recently and she said, as someone with an invisible disability, I am aware of my privileges in it, but it also comes with its own set of challenges. Often with many of us not having the severity of our conditions taken seriously by the government, medical industry and society in general. It's also about reclaiming the word disabled because it's not a bad word and it's not something to be ashamed of. She also noted pointed out that t-shirt activism shouldn't be a substitute for actually doing the work and supporting the charities or causes long term. It shouldn't be the good deed these large companies tick off to make themselves look better, which sadly I feel it often is. So to summarise, and I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts on this. What can you do? You can donate direct instead. You can customize and upcycle a pre-existing t-shirt. You can call out brands with bad practices and interrogate them. I will actually leave a document in the show notes, which will give you a list of questions in terms of uh, sustainability and ethics that you can ask brands directly. You can just copy and paste it into their DMs or into their comments and only buy what you love and make it last a lifetime. Yeah, I totally agree, um, Venetia. I also just think that brands, they don't need to make new materials to show their solidarity. Like, why aren't these big brands just saying we will donate X percentage of our profits? Or how about this? Maybe just pay all the workers that they haven't paid for the stuff that's already in their warehouses and in their shops. I think there are brilliant campaigns from Labour Behind the Label, from Clean Clothes Campaign and from Remake who are doing so much around drawing our attention to this as well. And I really think that people should give them a check and and see how they can get involved in that action. But I think call out the brands themselves. I know we're talking about, you know, some of the high street brands, some of the fast fashion brands that we ourselves, you know, have products from, have bought products from. And we also just like, you know, for me, I really recognize that there's a privilege in being able to like think about buying ethically or think about buying that, you know, we all don't have the financial privilege to access ethically made clothes that aren't, you know, two pounds for a t-shirt or aren't four pounds for a pair of shorts um, and allow you to keep up to date with style. But I think the question for all of us to ask is the reason that we're all even searching for things that are just two or four pounds to Ruby's point, what's, you know, why why are we, what's the need for us to consume to get a sense of happiness or to get a sense of a hit in solidarity? Why does consumption play a role in that? And why are we stuck in systems of poverty or, or you know, or, or relative wealth compared to these 1% of people who are billionaires? And since the beginning of the crisis, like billionaires have accumulated 234 billion worth of money just from the crisis, whereas millions and millions of people around the world are completely unemployed. And for me, it just, it draws me back to what Davy was saying, this is a systemic issue. The whole system is broken. And I'm always reminded of Audre Lorde's quote, which is, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. We need new ways to reimagine what a new system looks like. Something that you said there, Swati, you know, asking the question of like, why do we feel the need to buy cheap clothes? We also need to recognize that that is also what people can afford. And 
the question is then also why is that all you can afford why cannot why can't you afford the more expensive ethically made clothes and to see your struggle interconnected with garment workers who demand a living wage you should be making more you deserve better clothes you deserve a better system we all do and i think that's also with with brands doing you know the slurgan t-shirt i almost get frustrated because like it's not creative we've been doing that for years it's not innovative <laughs> at all and it's not really authentic at all anymore i expect more i demand more it's 2020 and intersectionality matters so much it is we are all interconnected in the struggle i feel a lot of the ways that brands are doing this is also like lazy as well like there's something of just not being bothered to find out and to have the courage and the bravery to to do things differently um but the pandemic for me is like i just in my own context and in so many places like overnight saw changes that governments you know had been telling us were just like impossible like the private health system being made public overnight child care being free like things that were just unthinkable in the context we were told were not possible um and i think you know in that sense for me like there's an opportunity at this moment to reimagine and to transform systems but it's going to take like a lot of coordinated organizing and and really finding ways to lift up the work that is being done um, i've seen an incredible surge so they were already there but they're more visible like expressions of solidarity economies of mutual aid of communities coming together and supporting each other um, and ask like questioning systems and questioning the way we do things and i think it's a real opportunity and i just, we can't come out of this as business as usual when i think about the garment factory workers that are actually like speaking up against all odds and like demanding in the face of being really like pushed to de-unionize and to not organize collectively and like finding ways to still speak out about their labor conditions and the wages and all of the things that they're being asked to do, like to take all their leave and just crazy stuff. Like the bravery there and the risks they're taking, um, yeah, are huge. So I think we all have a responsibility to, to do more um, and to try and hold companies accountable but also in our own lives think of ways that we can change and practice that i completely agree i just want to reference a an instagram uh, post that i saw this week by tansy hoskins who is the author of stitched up and footwork the title of the post was the people in those primark queues are not your enemy and this is just a little excerpt from the caption. She says, fashion is a false emancipation. It is the working class that are held captive in sweatshops, have their unions smashed, their homes flooded or turned to dust by climate change, wear poor quality clothes that wear out easily. It is the working class that are forced by low wages and the homogenization of high streets into shopping or working in shops like Primark and who are driven to a sense of inadequacy for not keeping up with fashion just really reminded me of that post, which I found really powerful. Yeah, something that I noticed this week just when I was looking on Instagram uh, was a post by Princess Nokia, who I love, actually. Um, and it was a little conflicting for me, honestly. And she's just um, come out with a charity t-shirt and a campaign um, in collaboration with Forever 21 and the Trevor Project. And, you know, a lot of things about it were really amazing. And it was around the time of Pride. It's Pride Week and we're great. But uh, like a lot of conflict, obviously, about fast fashion. And I was noticing in a lot of her comments, like some of the, yeah, some of her fans were really disappointed, understandably. Um, and lots of 
different opinions. But yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if any of you saw it and like what you thought and yeah, how it was sitting with you. When you sent the post to our WhatsApp group, I was so grateful because I hadn't come across Princess Nokia before. And then I went into a YouTube hole watching videos of Princess Nokia and obsessing. It was really interesting reading some of the comments. I think most people were did feel quite disappointed, but there was one that really struck me. And it was by someone called OJ Maciel. And they said, representation is power. Hating on the company's practices is fine. Push for and demand change. I have nothing but mad respect for that. But hating on a brand sister for using her power to strengthen her brand and in turn expanding the corporate colour scheme is short-sighted. It smells of the same ignorance Jackie Robinson received from his own community for agreeing to play with racists. There isn't only one way to change the culture. Also, don't ignore the diverse palette of creatives who have worked tirelessly to influence company practice and the fashion industry as a whole. Don't revoke their POC cards because they don't yell like you do. More power to you for your fervour. Promoting discussion and asking her questions regarding her motivation is fine, but tearing her down is just hate. Stand up for your beliefs, but not on other people's backs. She's fighting her way. And I just found that, I thought it was really intelligently put for an Instagram comment. And I just thought it kind of added a nice bit of grey area and nuance to a debate that for me is often very black and white. I'm, I I usually take quite a hard stance on this kind of thing. So I just found reading that um, really impactful. And it's definitely something that I'm going to bear in mind. I think what comes up for me there and that I've learned through this is from so many amazing social justice organizers is like, there's just different tactics at different moments. And I think that they are valid in different ways. And it is really a life's work to figure out when to use what to call out or to call in or whether, you know, use your platform. Like if you are someone who has access to that kind of partnership with forever 21 or whatever brand, like you could use it to actually reform an institution, but definitely be wary of being called a sellout. You know, we, people who reform, I think get called uh, being sellouts. People who resist might be called radicals. And I'm referring to a framework. It comes from an organization called Spirit in Action. And I just love the way that they've talked about um, changing the system through four R's, which is reimagining culture, resisting domination, reforming institutions and recreating society. One of the things that I was thinking, Davy, while you were speaking was just, you know, like that pause, that reflection and that honesty, you know, this is life's work um, to work towards like justice, to work towards liberation, to constantly educate yourself. But it's in all of our interests to do that. We're not, you know, we are complicit and benefiting and exploited within this system that we sit within. Some of the things that you were saying, both Venetia, Davey and Ruby, you were all saying also reminded me of Minha's um, Twitter post that we also shared on our WhatsApp and um, just reading from it. Just a reminder that boycotting these deadbeat brands don't get workers paid. Better action Email, tweet at, comment on these brands' social media pages, demand that they pay for their orders in full. Unbelievably, some brands are trying to negotiate partial payments. More evidence to refute the fast fashion fallacy. Labor exploitation and wage theft aren't fast fashion problems. They're capitalist problems. Fast fashion is a scapegoat 
not the source of these problems love that so good yeah i'll link the i think it's from um i think it might be from an essay or an article which i'll try and find and link in the show notes last month in june two billion pounds worth of stock was headed for landfill in bangladesh as a result of high street brands refusing to pay up for items that have already been made a company called lost stock partnered with multi-retailer app MallZ to offer boxes of these clothes at a discounted price of £35. And this money will pay a garment worker for a week. This felt like a good short-term solution for the current crisis that garment workers face. But should the onus fall on us as consumers to buy clothes that we don't necessarily need in order to support garment workers? I found this fascinating and I got so many messages about it on Instagram found it really interesting for a few reasons firstly because it made me kind of realize how many people had maybe given up fast fashion and how much people were missing it and I really really understand that but what really frustrated me about it is that of course I care so much about this I would love to feel like I'm supporting garment workers directly but why do I then have to buy a box of clothes that I don't necessarily want or necessarily need in order to do that. And I felt there's something that was really missing in Lost Stock's ca- uh, campaign and initiative was education. And I also, I'm not trusting of Malsey either. That felt very dubious to me. But I also understand that it was a really good way to prevent clothes from going to landfill and also to give money to people who really needed it. So I felt really conflicted about it. You know, the thing that annoyed me a little bit about Last Stuck is that I felt like it was still a kind of manipulation for both our compassion for workers and our addiction to fashion. It just doesn't feel transformative. If I move to buy a Lost Stock box because I care about workers, I want I, I want to hold myself accountable to doing more. And I think it's another thing that we're lifting up in this podcast of like ways that you can act. And I think education, like you said, Venetia, is one of the, is a really big thing of just like learn about workers organizing around the world or, you know, closer to home to you and try to understand like, why can't they have a solidarity fund that's created by their, the brand that they work for? Why is it, me that has to do that. Corporations are avoiding as much as 30% of their tax liabilities. And, you know, for when I was talking about using your platform and giving also giving people grace to pause and understand their mistakes, I think it still depends on your scale of impact and how much access you have to things. So you might, you get a little less grace or if you have access to the systems that can transport boxes, that can reach workers, that can reach consumers, I just expect more. And I see on a smaller scale, like no sweat uh, campaigns where you know you work with punk bands to create band merchandise that isn't made in a sweatshop. Like there are wonderful alternative models out there. And so I just expect people who have access to resources to be doing that more than anything else.
We were delighted to catch up with Aisha Barrenblatt, who is the founder and the CEO of Remake. Aisha is a social entrepreneur with a passion for building sustainable supply chains that respect people and our planet. With over a decade of leadership to promote social justice and sustainability within the fashion industry, she founded Remake to ignite a conscious consumer movement. Remake's film, stories and immersive journeys rebuild human connections with the women who make our codes. Aisha has worked with brands, governments and labour advocates to improve the lives of the women who make our clothes and we are just such supporters of her work so here's the interview Aisha hello thank you so much for coming on the podcast we're delighted to have you with us I'm so happy to be here Venetia thanks for having me now please can we start by you explaining to us what you're wearing today (laughs) yes absolutely so I have a really fun bright red Karen Miller dress on and the only reason I can afford it is because I found it at a secondhand shop uh, Buffalo Exchange here in San Francisco and it's part of our no new clothes for 90 day challenge here at Remake there's about 540 people who've currently taken this pledge with me and think of it as of a fashion diet we're essentially capturing how much we save in terms of money carbon waste and water while we buy nothing for the summer and you know your listeners can't see but i've had this dress forever and actually i've recently repaired a patch because it had a tear and that's really what no new clothes is all about you know rediscovering what we already own Uh, we're going to be offering mending and repairing workshops all summer sharing our ethical sustainable uh, uh, outfits and then spending our summer advocating for the women who make our clothes which i know you're so passionate about so i was actually lucky enough to see it on zoom and i can i can back that up it's very very lovely and (laughs) i'm not usually one for diets but fashion diets i'm absolutely behind so yeah really really appreciate this campaign i just think it's brilliant and definitely something that our listeners would love to get involved with so we love remake and everything that you do i feel like i'm just constantly sharing everything that you're up to and your articles and your uh, campaigns on social media but we'd love for you to tell us about your recent hashtag pay up campaign um, and also examples that prove why activism works yeah absolutely so you know with covid19 one of the things that fashion brands and retailers did was en masse cancel orders that were already in production or that were being produced. And I think for listeners, you know, recognizing that brands and retailers have contracts with loopholes in it. And so what they did was essentially put all the risk down to the manufacturers, the factories, who in turn pushed the risk down to workers. And one of the things that we did with our now viral pay up campaign is essentially just educate people to say this time in a pandemic, when the people who make our clothes are already vulnerable that live paycheck to paycheck, this is not the time for us to be turning our back on the women who make our clothes. And what we've been so heartened and delighted by is that over the past few months, we've engaged over 4.8 million people on Instagram. We've garnered 62,000 signatures on our petition. And the power of activism, you know, for those who are sheltering in place or still tentatively going back to the world to know that your voice matters because this campaign has allowed us to now engage 16 brands to actually pay their back bills, which has meant unlocking 600 million in back orders in Bangladesh alone and another seven and a half billion globally. Um, And so it really is, you know, us as everyday women, models, influencers, shoppers, designers coming together 
in solidarity. If you are yet to sign, you still can. We'll leave the link in the show notes. Primark uh, are a brand that seem to keep popping up at the moment because they <laughs> promised to fund wages of factory workers, even though they withheld payment on over $273 million worth of orders in Bangladesh in the mm-hmm. wake of the coronavirus. The most of any withheld payments reported in the country. What's more, they're putting out all kinds of pro-diversity and pro-equality statements. But their Amberstone factory just fired 29 young Burmese women workers for organising a union. Aisha, how are they getting away with this? And if their CEOs just happen to be listening, what would you say to them? Well, I hope they're listening, Venetia, and you know, (laughs) they were listening. Um, My message to them would be very simple. Look, the average salary of a garment maker in Bangladesh is just $96 a month. You know, many are still fighting for back wages all the way back from spring. They're out protesting on the streets with the risk of contracting COVID-19. You know, we've heard from workers that they're increasingly becoming housing insecure, that they're eating less. And so really, Primark, this is not the time for you to be shoring up your own balance sheet at the expense of vulnerable black and brown women. If you truly stand for equality, then pay up, pay for all your back bills and know that time is of the essence. You know, we're watching the long streets of shoppers now that stores are slowly opening, lining up to buy from Primark. We know that they have the cash. Uh, and so at this point, what, what we're really needing is for workers to have their salaries in their hands. Absolutely. I think it's really important for us to kind of emphasize that our issue here isn't with the people who are shopping at Primark. The issue mm. is the fact that these companies are run by billionaires who are making money so unethically. Yeah, and you know, I completely agree with you, Venetia, that this is really the time for us to be not pitting, you know, working class people who are needing to buy from Primark in the UK against the garment workers who are protesting for their salaries. In many ways, this just shows everything that's broken with fast fashion, right? Where we are lulled into needing to buy mounds and mounds of clothes because of rising income inequality, clothes that are going to contribute to so much waste and who are really built on the destruction and oppression of black and brown women around the world. Big question for you. Mm. Do you believe we can change the system that we've mentioned and rebuild one that is fair for everyone? You know, I really hope so. If I didn't, I wouldn't have been doing this work for as long as I have. And I think one of the things that's been most heartening in these difficult times is what we're starting to see is a lot of solidarity. Solidarity across garment workers in different countries, solidarity with warehouse workers, with retail workers who've similarly been furloughed or not, you know, or been let go off without severance pay. And I think one of the things that all of us is realizing is that fashion as a system works for few rather than many. And what we're needing to do is really rebuild the system, putting sustainability and justice in the very center rather than retrofitting it as an afterthought. Everything feels quite heavy at the moment, but I don't know about you, I feel quite hopeful too. I do too. Look, you know, when we launched the pay up campaign, we had a lot of empathy to realize people were hurting, you know, people right here at home were being laid off. You know, would they even have the brain space to be thinking about workers around the world? And our community showed up. 
And so if anything, I think there really is the solidarity and this moment in time where we're realizing the intersectionality of all these issues. You know, you care about women's empowerment, you care about racial justice, you care about um, doing right by people, then what we buy really is a vote in that system. Yes, it's all connected. Absolutely. I'd love to kind of wrap up this interview by asking you if you could tell us about any activists or other organizations um, who you're finding really inspiring who are recreating and reimagining this new system as we'd love to hear about them learn about them and share their work Yes, you know, one of the things that has been so amazing is to see uh, amazing women activists, whether it's frontline organizers of labor, whether it's union leaders, you know, within the context of Bangladesh, there are two incredible activists. Kalpana Akhtar, who's the founder and executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity, and then Nazma Akhtar, not related, but of a different wonderful organization, Awaj Foundation. And they have been doing incredible work to really bring the voices of workers on the forefront so we can really hear directly from the women who make our clothes on what the impact is of the industry essentially turning their back on her at a time when she needs us most. And so for listeners that are interested on our site, remake.world, not only do we have the petition, but also a way to donate and support some of these frontline organizers. We keep adding different countries to it. And I really do think that it's been exciting, you know, with all the work you're doing in Venetia, seeing models and activists lending their platform to show solidarity, that it really is women stepping up to say, this is a time for fashion to really have a reckoning and to be making sure that it is uh, an industry that's rebuilt, that's thinking about people and our planet first. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's always so wonderful to hear about the people who inspire, the people we're inspired by. Anisha, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us today. Honestly, we are just such huge admirers of your work and we can't wait for more people to hop on board the remake ship. So you'll now understand just how fortunate I feel to have spent the past four months speaking to and learning from these incredible women on this campaign. Tune in next week where we'll be discussing Fashion Has a Racism Problem with Audra Barber and Salamisha Tillett. We'd like to take this opportunity to give a huge shout out to the incredible team at Pentagram. Ashley, Naresh, Albie, Chloe, Katie and Robin. Our wonderful illustrators, Judith, Holly, Sophie and Magali. Our lovely web designer, Gina. G at Patreon, the masterminds behind our music, Melissa LaRue and Colin Emmanuel, and of course, you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You are now a huge part of this journey and campaign. We'd love for you to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend and follow us on Instagram at Remember Who Made Them. And do be sure to click the show notes for lots of extra information about this cause and how to donate. Let this melody take you on a journey.